Good morning again. I'd love for you to take out your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 22. Right at the end of the 22nd chapter of Acts is where I'm going to pick up reading in just a moment. As you're turning there, I just want want to mention a couple things that I'm thankful for. Uh, One is uh, Brian Zhang, who's the pastoral assistant here. Uh, He he stands up and says some things sometimes. You probably recognize him if you were here, but... Uh, I'm grateful he had an opportunity this weekend to go and to teach and to preach at a, at a men's retreat for one of the campus ministries. And so uh, I'm, I'm happy, and I just wanted to acknowledge that, ask you to be praying that there was good fruit this weekend. Uh, Brian's an effective communicator, and it's cool to see him getting opportunities uh, for that. Uh, but I've been thinking about him a lot. They're suffering, suffering in Destin, Florida, in the last few days. So um, I just wanted to make mention of where he was at. We're going we're gonna to dive in in just a moment. I'm going to read the 30th verse of Acts chapter 22 and then all the way through Acts 23. And if there's one thing that I, I would want to say in this particular episode, this section of the narrative that Luke is recording for us in Paul's life, I think it's just this, this basic idea, something that's been, been rolling around, and that, that's this simple fact. Faithfulness is underrated. Faithfulness is extremely underrated. Like many things that are underrated, it means that it's easy to take for granted. And sometimes it it takes us uh, a reorienting of our perspective for us to realize just how significant and important it is. Sometimes I wonder, why why is it that things get underrated? In some cases, poor Scottie Pippen, right? It's obvious why he's underrated, because playing next to him on the court is the greatest human basketball player. I don't know why I added human. That's an interesting qualifier. Um, (laughs) Well, he was in Space Jam, right? So I guess it's legit. Uh, Michael Jordan, right, was the best basketball player to ever lace up shoes. And so, of course, poor Scotty's going to be underrated. I wonder sometimes if faithfulness is underrated, though, because we long for flashier things. Just honestly, it's just hard to rate things enough and to be esteeming them the way that they ought. And so we just esteem so many other things that faithfulness just falls by the wayside. You know, what's not underrated is skill and rhetoric and logic and oratory and good looks and athletic ability and money. Those things are just flashy. They're just easy to love, easy to esteem. And all along, there's this call, there's this longing in each of us But faithfulness, faithfulness is something that should be esteemed and prized. And it's given to us as an example in the life of Paul. And right underneath the midst of his his unbelievable, unbelievable and perceptive boldness, right underneath his entrepreneurial spirit, right underneath the planting of churches and his sense of adventure, right under our noses this whole time is this unbelievable faithfulness. It's not a mistake. You recall in that Hallmark movie moment with the Ephesians elders, Ephesian elders right at the end of Acts 20, just before the crying and kneeling and weeping. What does he say to them? He says, I'm basically longing for one thing. I, I want to be faithful. I want to finish the course. If I could just testify to the gospel, that's all I want. I just want faithfulness. And I would imagine for a, a driven, successful, studied, zealous, Pharisee like Paul to come to a point where mere faithfulness is the thing that his heart's longing after. There's something for us to learn in this. There really is. And you've sensed it. You've felt the desire and the need for faithfulness in anything that you've been at 
for anything that you have endeavored to do for any period of time. One of the ways that I know that someone is maturing in something, that they've been humbled a little bit in life, is that their grandiose vision of what it looks like to succeed starts to get tempered just a little bit. Parenting is a great example of that, right? How many ideas did you have about your perfect parenting when everyone else's children were annoying, right? I don't know why they just don't discipline that child. I mean, all you have to do is just tell them what to do. And the next week, bring them up in the way they ought to go, right? Fear and admonition of the Lord and all that. You have this vision, right, of these grand things when you're a kid. Fireplaces, walking into family worship, the kids bringing your coffee for you. Father, tell us more. Systematic theology. Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge is my favorite this week, right? You have these grandiose ideas of success, and it looks a particular way. You have all the details worked out. And then life humbles you. And you realize that faithfulness is a lot harder than you thought it might be. I heard a pastor say one time that there was a certain point when he had zero children and six perfect ideas of parenting. And now he has six children and zero perfect ideas of parenting. Faithfulness is underrated. It's especially underrated because oftentimes faithfulness doesn't happen the way that you'd think. Faithfulness happens in the messiness, the mundane, the plodding. Faithfulness happens sometimes right in the moments that are outside of our control. And that's what we're going to see in this particular section of Acts. It basically reads like an episode of 24. And so I want you to buckle up and I would love for you to follow along with me. The goal is not for you to be moved and stirred by someone else's ability to read and study the Bible. Uh, we'd love for you to find a hunger for these words This is God revealing himself to us. So I'm going to start reading 30th verse of Acts chapter 22. This is what Luke, moved along by the Holy Spirit, records for us. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the councils to meet. He brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? And those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contented, contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, you must testify also in Rome. I'm going to pause there for a moment. I want to pray. Father, here we are once again. We've gathered and we've sung your praise, declared your goodness, and now we read in expectancy, in anticipation that you might move. We pray, God, that in these moments your word would would be found to be what it declares of itself. It's living and it's active. God, I confess to you a neediness. I need words that would bring clarity and sharpness. God, all of us need eyes to see. Would you, Holy Spirit, dig ears for us? And in our hearing, help us to have softened hearts to receive and to walk in your truth. God, I pray that we would see in the life of Paul a desire and longing to be faithful. We thank you. We thank you for these moments. We thank you that you desire our good. You desire our joy more than, than we do even. We pray, God, now for your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to cover essentially the entirety of Acts chapter 23. We paused at verse 11 because I think it's a hinge point in the text. I think it's, it gives us a hint, the source behind Paul's faithfulness. And for a few moments today, I just want to consider what it looked like for Paul to be faithful. What task was he given? What vocation was he in? What would it sound like for him to receive a good, a good and faithful servant commendation from, from God? For him, he had a very specific task to be sent to the Gentiles to testify to the facts concerning the resurrection. And I don't know what his desire was or his thought was at first. He certainly didn't set out for the kind of adventures that he would be put on. But I do know that by the time he reaches this point in the text, that he has replaced any grandiose ideas of being received perfectly by the Jews, of ushering in wholesale and widespread kingdom change, down with the temple, that sort of thing has been replaced by what really seems to be a fairly humble request. God, help me to be faithful. Help me to be faithful. What we're going to see by the end of this little episode in his life is that God's interest in Paul's faithfulness, his desire to stand by him, is the source of all true faithfulness in the Christian life. That's the idea. That's what we're going to see. And to get there, we have to get through a few adventures. And that's just how faithfulness is, right? Faithfulness comes about in the times that are unexpected. Faithfulness comes about when you haven't noticed it. It's just simply gone by. Young married couples, when they come to me and I'm doing premarital counseling with them, they talk about love. They talk about it in the most glowing terms. And I probably contribute to them. I have them take time to think and explain to the other. Tell me the perfect spouse. Tell me the perfect wife. Tell me the perfect husband. What are they like and what do they do? And sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes I sit there just like dabbing my eyes like, like good one, Joe. Right? Like, you did a great job. That was, that was beautiful. I think for many of the couples, I have to press on them. You know what is going to be amazing in your marriage? You're going to look back 35 years from now and you're going to say to yourself, to your, to say to your spouse and to yourself, did you really 
come home every single day? Did you wake up by me again? Are you going to do it again tomorrow? Did you serve again? Did you cry with me? Did you bring me to one more dentist appointment when my teeth had that thing and it was a problem and it was annoying you had to leave work? Again, were you faithful? I want to fist bump old people when they say I've been married for 56 years. It's like, what an amazing kind of faithfulness. And I think that it'll sneak up on them as the years go by. It just sort of happens in the most unexpected of turns. Faithfulness is kind of messy, and this is one of the most messy parts of Acts. We have this instance at the beginning, right, where he goes back and forth. They are playing Plinko of sorts with Paul's life, right? He gets to Jerusalem. He enters a massive Plinko board. It's in front of the, in front of the, the Christian Jewish leaders. Hey, you need to cut your hair and go through purification rites. We're going to sneak you in the side where everything's going to be fine. Oh, wait, nope. The Jewish Asian people saw him and said, I know who Paul is. He's a rabble rouser. We should, oh, I don't know. Let's kill him. Let's do that, right? Then the Romans come in. They have to rescue him. He goes before the Romans. The Romans are confused by him. Now he goes back to the Jewish council, back and forth and back and forth. And our text opens with him standing in front of the council. And he has one of the telltale signs of faithfulness in testifying before others and before God one of the telltale signs, he has a steadfastness and a clear conscience. It's the first thing that we see. There's a clear conscience. Faithfulness brings with it one of the most amazing gifts the world has to offer, a clear conscience before God, that what you've been asked to do, the thing that you'd committed to do, have you felt the sting, the pain of committing, covenanting to something? starting on a path and then realizing that you've abandoned it, that you've fallen, that you've failed, you haven't walked in your word, that is a sting deep down in the soul. And one of the things that God grants in faithfulness is an ability to say, I've lived with a clear conscience. And that's the testimony that Paul gives before the council. Now, one of the things that we have to understand and try to figure out is what is it about this statement? Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What is it about this statement that makes the high priest gong show, like just straight up, what's that, uh, what's that show? Sarah and I used to watch it. That's uh, like America's Got Talent. You've seen this, right? The person's performing. They're giving a speech. They're singing a song. Everyone has a buzzer. There comes a certain point where the, the horror of their lack of skill becomes so painful that the person just like just buzzes them out. Oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. Anyway, they buzz them out. You've seen it. This is just a new updated version of one of my favorite shows when I was a kid. It was called The Gong Show. Anybody ever watch this when you're a child? It was even more painful than having to hit a buzzer and hearing a sound. The producers of the show spared no expense. They created one of the finest gongs the modern world has ever seen. And it would sit on stage, brass and imposing. There was actually a hammer, a mallet, and it would sit next to the gong, and the judges would watch someone perform. And right at that point of cringiness, the sort of, oh, I'm, I'm embarrassed for you moment, right? That kind of feeling. Someone would go over and the judge would stand and, and hold the mallet and sometimes they would even like tempt the person in just this last bit of, of terrible torture. And then finally they would just say, enough, it's over, and they would bang the gong. There's something about Paul's comment here that makes the high priest bang the gong. It's, it's over, and more than just bang the gong, he is enraged. He says, strike this man on the mouth. Hit him. Punch him. 
I think there's a few things that probably would have made this to be the case. The first clue is in the first verse, looking intently at the council. You get the impression that Paul maybe had a little bit of sort of like stubborn teenager in him at this point, right? He's the kind, kind of like the kid whose parents say, sit down, sit down, sit down. And the child says, you can make me sit down, but I want you to know that I'm standing in my heart, right? That kind of thing. It's kind of that response. He looked intently at the council. I'm not sure what it was about his look at this moment, but it must have been steeled enough that Luke thought, I need to add that detail. There's something in here that says from Paul, I, today is not the day. It's been 20 plus years. I've been shipwrecked and abandoned and stoned and beaten. I've been mocked and reviled. I've faced hunger and want. Today is not the day. This is not the day of equivocation. This is not the day of softening. This is not the breach. He is looking at the council with a knowing look. I believe that's one of the reasons that the council was so quick to strike him down. Another reason, of course, is that there is a massive theological statement behind what Paul says implicitly in this text. He knows the debate that's going on. Was Jesus the Messiah or not? Is God doing miraculous, supernatural, wonder-working things in this man from Nazareth or not? Have you been, Paul, a denier of the law, a denier of Moses, a denier of everything our forefathers fought to, to hand down to us? Are you an offense to this people and this place? Have you desecrated the temple? That's what's behind this statement. And Paul says, I have lived before God, not just me, that when God sees my life as well, I have a clear conscience. And not right up until Damascus, not while I was studying under Gamaliel, right? I have a clear conscience all the way up until this very moment. Yesterday, when I preached Jesus to the first Roman guards who found me. Yesterday, when I spoke of Jesus and his relationship to the law. Yes, high priest. Yes, counsel. I have a clear conscience before God. This is what Paul's after. He longs not for the esteem of men. He doesn't even care for his own safety. He simply wants to be faithful and find that clear conscience that he can offer to God in the final day. This is something that he has spoken of at other places in Scripture. He writes about it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says in, first, in the first chapter, verse 3, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly my prayers night and day. Let me tell you that there is something to be offered, that God is offering to us in Jesus Christ and a clear conscience should not be dismissed. It's not a light thing. It's not a small thing. And so Paul says to them, I've lived in a good conscience. The other thing that happens here in Paul, one of the telltale signs of his faithfulness is a desire to live before God with a clear conscience. The second one that's interesting about this though is that faithfulness does not mean sinlessness. That's difficult for people. Faithfulness does not mean sinlessness. You can be faithful to your spouse while sinning against them in a variety of ways every single day of your marriage. That's just the reality of how things work. You are a fallen person. You're much more needy than you would ever willingly admit. 
Faithfulness does not mean sinlessness. The reason I bring that up is because this whole exchange, it seems like Paul kind of loses it a little bit, right? Many people, many commentaries don't know what to make of this. There's times when you go to teach the Bible, right? And it's like everyone has written everything that needs to be said and all you need to do is regurgitate it. It's a fairly simple task. And then you get other times where you read five different commentaries and everyone says something different about it and it's all speculation. I think to some extent, Paul probably was flustered to the point of sinning in this moment. He basically calls down a curse. I think you could read, read verse 5 almost as sort of an apology. It certainly is not walking exactly like Jesus who when he was before those who mocked and reviled and even hit him, did not speak a word, right? That's the prophetic prophecy of the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. He was silent before those who slaughtered him. But you can understand Paul, right? There's many times when Paul is this mythical figure, and I can't understand him, but getting hit in the mouth and then cursing the person, you can get that, right? You can be like Paul. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He didn't say which verse, right? He didn't say which part. The whole punched in the mouth and cursing people thing, he got that down, right? Now, I confess to you, I read this, and I'm not sure how much that would fluster a person. I don't recall a single time being punched in the mouth. My brother punched me in the nose one time. He still disputes it. He says it was in the arm. And I said, he punched me so hard in the arm that my nose bled, apparently. That's, uh, he's, he's a biological wonder. I could not remember being in a fight with someone where I got hit in the mouth so hard that it made me flustered. I was in one fight my whole life. Uh, it was in fifth grade. I was playing pond hockey at the little rink in my town, right? It's a big hockey day, apparently. And uh, I just felt this kind of cathartic moment. I just wanted you to know about this. I, I was going, and I, I was on a breakaway, basically. No one in front of me, and we didn't play with goalies at the time, so I was about to score. And this guy from the other team did this totally Bush League thing. And he just, like, threw his stick across the ice, so that I almost slipped on it, and then it hit the puck, and it went away, and so I didn't score. And it was at a time when it was very contentious in the game. We were about to win. And so I did the only thing you should do at that point. When he skated by me, I yelled at him, and I put my stick in that spot right between his skates. Anybody has hockey skates? There's like a hole in there, and you can put your stick in it, and then you can just hook their legs out right from underneath them. I straight cartoon charactered that guy, like right on his back, and I just kept on ska- skating. I just thought, now the universe is a more just place, right? And when I turned around, he was just bull rushing me on his skates like an elephant that was enraged. I've never had that experience. I made that part up. He's like I imagine. And uh, it wasn't really a fight. It was like uh, I was a little bit better on skates, and so I pushed him, and he fell down. And then I laid on top of him, put my arm around his neck, and I just kind of went like this, like this a couple times. And then there was a moment of silence where we stared at each other as fifth graders like, where's this going next? And, um, and where it went was his little sister calling over the board saying, we need to go home. And so he got up and he skated off and he left. And that's my fight record. So I just wanted you to know that I don't know how flustered you could probably be. I know for many of you, you think I told that story to show that I would have like an undefeated fight record. But... Um, Really, I told it to think to myself, like, I ought to defend something once in a while, right? Like, what kind of man am I? I need to mix it up. Anyway, Paul's flustered. I think he's full-on angry. I think he's angry, and he cries out, God's going to strike you. He curses. And it's not just the fact that he's angry, and that he does something that even himself would write later to the Corinthians in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. He says, when we are reviled, we bless. Well, not really, Paul. Right? He wrote that a couple of years probably before this moment. 
So he fails. Even according to his own standard, he fails. And it's not just the fact that he's not perfect in his sin or his anger, but we also see this idea, how in the world did he not know this was the high priest? And again, people say to themselves different things about what's happening here. Some people think he's being ironic. Of course, Paul knew who the high priest was. Not only is he being ironic, but he's being a little bit sarcastic. He is biting the high priest, saying, there's no way you could have been a high priest, someone who acts like that. History would be on Paul's side. Most historians recount this time and say that Ananias was not fit to be a high priest of the Jews at this point in history. Other people, and this is an honest-to-goodness commentary description of what could have happened. There are people who say, well, you know, this was like an, un, it was an unscheduled gathering of the council. The Romans brought him together. The reason he wouldn't have known is he wasn't wearing the right clothes. This is what you might call the casual Friday defense, right? Like, like I'm, I'm sorry, boss. I just didn't notice you there. You're wearing jeans, right? And, and that's just not the norm. I think a more intriguing idea of perhaps why Paul didn't know who this high priest was apart from the rage that could have had him flustered, apart from the fact that he'd been beaten over the last couple of days, I mean, maybe his vision was affected, is that he could have very likely had an actual eye problem in his life. Many people think that at a certain point, perhaps thorn in the flesh for Paul was actually an issue of his eyes. And we get that from a couple different places. The book of Galatians, probably the most likely and the most straightforward. This is chapter 4 of Galatians. Starting in verse 13, he says this, You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So I'm not sure what it was, except that Paul brings up a bodily ailment of some kind, that was a difficulty, could have brought in scorn upon himself, and instead of scorning and mocking Paul in his weakness, the people would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to him. Now, you can search and say maybe this is some sort of first century idiom about the way that you would serve someone, like raining cats and dogs or something like that. But I think the idea here is most people believe that there was in fact something wrong to some degree with Paul's eyes, at least this period of his ministry life. That's backed up by Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. Later in the same passage, he would have had someone who wrote letters for him, someone who came along as a companion and would have written down his letters. And then he apparently picks up the the pen himself in verse 11 of Galatians 6. And he says this, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. People think that perhaps the reason that he wrote such large letters is not because his pre-K teacher failed him, Stay in the lines, right? Stay in. Not because of that, but because he needed to be big so he could see what he was doing. Well, regardless of, of what it was, it doesn't matter exactly what it was, this exchange is interesting. And despite the fact that Paul fails, probably has a physical malady, certainly had a moment of anger, has to repent and say, yes, the law doesn't see, do not, does indeed say, do not speak evil of a ruler of your people. That faithfulness for Paul did not mean perfection. And that helps a guy like me. That ought to help a person like you. 
Following this exchange, we see Paul perceiving something. Verse 6, he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. These are the moments when Paul was handpicked a perfect candidate to be the kind of faithful witness that God needed. He knew this world inside out. The Sadducees have come up all throughout the New Testament to this point. Through the gospel, Jesus interacted with them. They've shown up a number of times already in Acts, in the book of Acts. And now we see explicitly what the problem was between these two sects of Judaism at this time. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Paul does an amazingly astute, I would say it borders, it, it borders on uh, a, a moment of political intrigue, almost conniving, right? You get the impression, do you remember? Scripture tells us that we ought to be as innocent as, of, as doves, but wise like serpents. This is that moment when Paul tells the truth. He says a real statement, I am on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead, but he knows what's going to happen. And what happens is this mob of people who at one point were all united against him, a common enemy, all of a sudden get fighting one another. And a house divided against itself will not stand. And so this particular section, I think, shows that faithfulness for Paul did not mean, this is a hard word to say, naivete. Is that a good word to say? Naivete? Naive? He was not dull. Faithfulness did not say, I came here to suffer and I guess I'm just going to suffer. Okay, everybody, come kill me now. He is he's wise. He is using a winsome argument. What he knows about the people and he ends up with a sort of kind of cartoon escape is what happens. You guys ever seen a cartoon? It could be like a Wile E. Coyote thing or like a Bugs Bunny thing. It's a massive mob and they all jump in to fight him, right? Huge dust ball of arms and legs and kicking and punching. And then the, our heroine, the character, crawls out on his hands and knees out the back of it, right? There's been a, probably a million different scenes in Western movies like this. The fight erupts and the guy sneaks out, crawling out the back door. This is essentially the, the move that Paul plays here. And what happens is, all of a sudden, the Pharisees who were decidedly against Paul become to his defense because they are not naturalists. They are not the kind of people who have completely removed, they've not gone through the history of God's interaction with his people and line item vetoed every bit of supernatural work. I think this is telling to us and we ought to learn a kind of wisdom in the way that we speak to a watching world. You know that especially in the West, we speak oftentimes to groups of people who mirror these, these groups. Some who are overly religious, believing in their goodness, believing in church attendance, believing in a desire that they can be pleasing to God in and of their own merit. And then for more often than not, those of us in a town of intellectuals and governments and universities, we encounter a kind of religion in the world that is basically naturalism. And that will be extremely important this week as you talk to people and say, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to church and I am going to worship a God who became flesh and then lived and then was dead and is now alive again. And not just any kind of alive, alive in a glorified body who then ascended and now reigns forevermore from heaven. And the world around, this naturalistic world that we live in, looks at you and says, how naive. If they're kind, they maybe just look at you with a smile that sort of screams, I want to pat you on the head right now. You know, like just 
How cute. There is an entire worldview and system that is opposed to Christianity that basically says this. Christianity cannot be true because all that happens in the world must be explained by physical means. It is simply matter bouncing around. There is no such thing as supernatural activity. And this is, of course, difficult for a world that needs to know Jesus, who is virgin-born. And it's right in that particular moment when you are needing to be faithful to what you know to be true in the face of what you know to be opposition that God needs to grant you a kind of consistency and steadfastness that Paul shows here. It wasn't just the fact that he's being political and wants to get out of it. He's also saying, I am on trial for the resurrection of the dead. This has been a part of Christian teaching from the beginning. Do you remember Peter at Pentecost? You know what he says in Acts chapter 2? He says a couple of things. One, he says this Jesus, he was handed over, delivered according to the plan of God, crucified. That's the huge wooden symbol behind my head. The cross. We'll consider it on Friday. The very next verse. This man God raised from the dead, loosing the pangs of death because he could not be held by it. The hope of the early church was a lot more solidly placed on the resurrection than most of us probably recall or remember. Acts chapter 4, there's a previous intersection of the Sadducees. This is pre-conversion for Saul. There's an intersection of the Sadducees and those believers in the early church. The believers are teaching. The captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. In verse 2, this is what it says of the Sadducees and the preaching of the resurrection. They were greatly annoyed. They were greatly annoyed. You know why faithfulness is so difficult sometimes? You know why it's underrated? Because it is foolishness to the world. Have you wrestled with that? Do you know that your ability to win the world will not come through strength? It's not going to come through your ability to be so wise, so profound, can't explain the metaphysical properties of a risen Savior in such a way that everyone says, oh, I get it now. It makes perfect sense. We've been called to testify and to be faithful to a message of foolishness to a watching world. It is foolishness to the world. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. It's difficult to be faithful because you inevitably, especially as a Christian, will encounter a moment where any objective person will watch the conversation, hear what you say, see how people respond, and say, oh, here's the problem. You sound like a complete idiot. Right? Why do people just, why do people not, not know? Why do they not come to church? Why do they not? Well, because at some level, faithfulness, faithfulness is to eschew the idea that you will be wise and convincing and sound profound. Sometimes faithfulness means... God is working in supernatural ways to bring about reconciliation to himself. And I'm grateful that Paul does not back down. I'm grateful that he steps forward and says, I am on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Now, you know the rest of the story, right? Paul escapes, just about to be torn to pieces. And then that night, right? I'm just going to give you shorthand the rest of Acts chapter 23. Then that night, Paul's nephew, his sister's son, 
And if you're paying attention, that should make you say, who? He had a sister and a son and a what? Right? His son hears about a murderous plot that 40-some Jewish people have decided and said, we will not eat nor drink until we kill Paul. That's repeated a number of times in this particular section. Legend has it, they're still hungry to this day. Right? (laughs) Like, didn't work, bros. Like, didn't happen. He ends up having a letter sent from Claudius to Felix. And this is one of the moments that God uses sovereignly to direct Paul up to a higher level of Roman government. In other words, the content of this particular passage is not full of Paul's preaching. This is a profound instance of Paul's faithfulness, and it does not come through his preaching. Faithfulness was God working on his behalf, at least in some measure and in some sense. You have to believe that at least at some point he wondered. Sometimes we think that if we're perfectly faithful, it means that everything's going to go well for us. It means that we'll get nothing but raises. It means that our friends and our neighbors will esteem and love us. If we're faithful to God, then he's just going to open every single door and it's going to be an easy life. It's another reason this is an instructive passage for us, faithfulness often, often happens when you least expect it, and most often in the messiness of life. I believe that Paul must have wrestled with that because verse 11 tells us the following night the Lord stood by him and spoke to him. Paul was not a superhero. He's not a supernatural. I bet he went to bed sometimes at night and said to himself, wow, okay, so as soon as I got to Jerusalem, God, did you abandon me? How long, O oh Lord, how long. You ever felt that? You ever sensed that? You ever began to think to yourself, like, I was faithful, God. How long? What you really mean is, I want my circumstances to change right now. Because you have the details of your life figured out. And I want you to know that the call to faithfulness sometimes is exactly when the details don't line up. And in the midst of that feeling, God is so good. Jesus is so good. He comes to Paul and he says, I'm here, I'm by you. This is the promise. You will be my witnesses into all the earth. But before that, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to come. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Faithfulness is simply the evidence that God has been with you all along. When you look back over your marriage and you say, how many years has it been now, honey? How many breakfasts? How many fights? How many moments of confusion? How many moves? How many mornings? This is God carrying you, sustaining you, giving grace so that you would be faithful the source of our faithfulness is not our ability to, grit, to just to grin and bear it, to grit our teeth and say, I can get through this. Oftentimes, if we're given eyes to see it, it's the Lord coming by and standing by us. I love Jesus' words. Take courage, he says. He's not commanding. He's not demanding. He not, doesn't even say to Paul, hey, that thing when you yelled at the high priest and cursed him, stop that not an instructional manual on how to be better. The Lord stands by Paul and says, take courage. It's the kind of thing he always said to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
This is the only hope, the only source of faithfulness in any endeavor in your life is the fact that God is determined to stand by you and to give you courage. This is why Paul is faithful to testify. This is why he seems like a superhero in our eyes because he has a faithful God sustaining him. He has understood and seen the source of his faithfulness is that the Lord stands by him. I think that all of us need to get to a certain point in life where we are moved to understand your faithfulness is not possible. Your faithfulness is not going to be because you figured it out and you finally won and you gritted through it and you were strong enough to do it. I mean, let's be honest, right? It'll be a miracle. I know it's going to sound crass or coarse or Debbie Downer-ish. It'll be a miracle if you're faithfully walking with Jesus next year. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. The sustaining faith that God gives for you to meet a challenge tomorrow and say, Jesus is enough. The belief, the hope, the freedom that you walk in to say that in Jesus, God was reconciling me to himself He's not holding my guilt and my shame and my sin against me. This faith, this seed of faith, is an unspeakable grace and mercy. It is a miracle from God. And the moment that you begin to believe that you are being perfected in your faith and you're walking faithfully with God because you've got it figured out and you made it, don't pray things like this. God, please help all those other people. And while you're at it, aren't you glad I had it figured out? You don't got to worry about me today. Just going to church, doing my thing. If you were to be faithful, it's because God is miraculously holding you up. This is what the letter of Jude ends with, right? The letter of Jude, despite its desire for us to contend for the faith, has this amazing doxology at the end. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. To those who are called, Jude opens, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. God has provided for you not only a way of forgiveness and freedom and life in Jesus Christ, but God is providing you in this very moment the faith that it needs to hold on and to hang on Your hope for faithfulness is not your strength. It's in the strength of the one who is holding you. That's what we're seeing in Paul's life. We should not read this story and say, I want to imitate Paul and not be so needy like those other Christians. The Lord stood by him and said to him, take courage. I know when I bring up a topic like faithfulness, that for many of you it stings. Right? In fact, here's what you brought today, all of us. Here's what we brought today. We brought a record of unfaithfulness. That's what we brought. Sometimes in the simplest of things, I'm just not going to sin in this way again. Sometimes you think if you could just covenant strong enough, make the vow beautiful enough, then somehow you'll just get there. And yet, day after day after day, you know what God's design is for his children? His design for his children is that every single day you would cry out for faithfulness and realize that it only comes in dependence on him. To run to him. And here's the good news about that. He does not fail. 
he cannot fail. This is the God who has saved you. This is the God who is keeping you, and he will keep you. He will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus, just like Paul. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for our time together today. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. We are grateful. God, we're grateful for the record of your faithfulness to your people. We're grateful for the record of your faithfulness to us. Despite our rebellion, despite our neediness, despite our sinfulness, you lived a perfect life for us. You died a substitutionary death for us. You rose again that you might be the first.